Our first movie tells the story of a friendship behind prison walls that spans more than 20 years. Hello and welcome to episode one of Middlebrow Madness, a podcast of cinematic hubris. My name is Derek Gaudet. Should am I supposed to say my name now? Uh, yep. I'm I'm Michelle Arf, everybody. I love not having to intro a podcast anymore. It's great. <laughs> oh man, uh, this is this is just my existence now. I live to host podcasts. We are here to determine which movie in the IMDb top two fifty is, in fact, the best movie of all time, or of that list anyway, using the tried-and-true bulletproof method of the single elimination bracket. And today, we are doing the first part of our first pod, the first two matchups of the 100 and, goddammit, 128 matches that we're going to have to do for the first round. It's a lot, right? It's, it's a little bit. It's, it's more than I originally thought about when I... So I just threw this idea, I should say, I just threw this idea out to Derek. I was like, hey, we should do this thing, because I thought it sounded like really fun to do. I didn't really consider the ramifications of what I was doing at that point, but now we're locked into it, and we've recorded the first episode, so now we have to get through this entire list. Yes, confusingly, our first episode is actually episode zero. This is the first episode, because we are starting the bracket right here, right now. We have two matchups. Uh, the first one is going to be uh, Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange, released in 1971, facing off against, uh, what's his cat's name? Oh yeah, Stuart Rosenberg's Cool Hand Luke, released in 1967. Now, we should lay out some additional ground rules that we've established for ourselves. Any one matchup, we can't really talk more for more than 20 minutes. We feel like that would be enough to get to a consensus. And I'm, I'm literally setting a timer so we can't go over that. And, uh, yeah, so each of us have, each of us has all four of our vetoes. And I don't know that we're going to use them this early on. There's some wild shit further up in the bracket. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually interested in to see how we end up using those vetoes because we're going to have to be very strategic. Like, I wouldn't use a veto to get a movie move forward that you don't like, for example. I would kind of want to be, on a movie that you're, you could go either way on, so I could maybe have more of a chance with that in the future. Right. But that's that's a strategy. We haven't even considered it yet, but it, it will be a crucial element 50 episodes into this podcast, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. And that that would place us, what, like nearly, like nearly at the end of the first round? Almost. <laughs> oh, man. In it, in, it, in it for the long haul, aren't we? We are. But this haul is going to be short because it's only 20 minutes long. Derek... All right. Why don't you tell me a little bit about these two movies? All right, so the first movies to enter the cage and the red corner, we have uh, Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange, released in 1971, uh, starring uh, Malcolm McDowell, Patrick McGee, and Michael Bates, based on the novel by Anthony Burgess of the same name. Um, should I do the other one, or should we talk about Clockwork a little bit? Uh, let's just talk about Clockwork. Uh, I haven't seen it for a while. I think the last time I saw it was when I was in high school. Which is probably, I don't know if that's the right age to be watching that movie. I don't, my parents were very lax in what they let me watch. Uh, it was basically as long as it wasn't 
absurdly sexually violent. I'm sure they were fine with it. Um, although this movie touches on that. It's a little bit too stylized to actually be as, I think, as intense as it wants to be. But uh, I think it's as, in, as intense as it needs to be. Uh, what did you think? When's the last time you saw this? Because this is your, you've seen this before, haven't you? I had seen this before, but I don't think I had seen, like, actually sat down and watched this in, like, 10 years. And I think it must be the third or fourth time I've seen this. Uh, what struck me this time, I think high school, maybe you're a little young to see this movie, not because of, like, the stylized violence or anything like that. Because you're a person in the world, you understand that sexual assault is bad, or at least you should. And um, I think I think you might get the wrong thing. You might get the wrong thing from Clockwork Orange if you watch it as like a 14-year-old because it's I feel like the IMDb viewer might be that person. <laughs> I think you're right because it's like movies like this and like Fight Club and RoboCop that people like but don't necessarily get and I feel like people who are like 13, 14, 15 and jamming these movies are susceptible to this kind of Yeah, and I think that's um what we're getting at I think is that Malcolm McDowell's the bad guy. But I think if you are, like, of a certain age or of a certain disposition, especially after the middle point when he is no longer violent, when he's been theoretically turned off of that due to the Ludovico technique, he is positioned in, like, traditional story structure as being the good guy, but I don't think Kubrick ever lets him actually be that. No, everyone in this movie sucks. Yeah, there's, like, no good people in this entire movie, which is part of the nope. reason I like it. It's also way funnier than I remember. Yeah, it's a lot more... I mean, I knew it was puerile to begin with, but this is a very, very puerile film. Oh, yeah. It's got dicks and titties and, like, like, it, like words that sound like swears but aren't. Which is, that's part of the reason that I was really, we were talking about this on um, the Dim the House Lights group chat, which is that it's surprising a movie like this got made, not just for the violence, not just for the sex, but also for the fact that they let him keep the vernacular of the book, which is mm -hmm. this combination of Cockney rhyming slang and like Slavic slang, which a lot of it almost reads as impenetrable. You understand what they're saying from the way that they're saying it and from the context of it, but the actual words just gloss over me most of the time, which is in a good way. I really appreciated that. No, nah, the, the script's really, well, the script's really interesting. I don't know. I mean, it's good. It's not good in like the traditional way, but it, uh, Malcolm McDowell's super charismatic, which I guess kind of fuels that initial, whoops, this guy is interesting and might be a role model kind of fire that we were talking about earlier. I think that his, his portrayal of the role is so much of what works about this movie. I think without a good um, Alex, this movie doesn't work at all. And he has to look both kind of childish while also being incredibly menacing. It, menacing in a goofy way, almost. He's at the same time both a buffoon and someone you are genuinely kind of afraid of. This movie ended up being more than I remember. I think on original watch, I had it four stars. I bumped up to four and a half on this one. I don't know if I'd go the full five, but I was really impressed with the stylization, with the way that I, I don't want to say connected with the Alex character, but that I, I understood his motivations, not in like a not in a empathetic way, but in, oh, I understand from the point of the view of the story what's going on, and his interiority makes a lot of sense, even if it's awful. Yeah, like, I get why this character does this. Yes. And it's also, it was laugh-out-loud funny at times. It's, it's a lot to take in at times, because I think what I wrote in the Slack was, I can't believe this movie has the audacity to have gags. <laughs> yes. And gags that land. 
the we, uh, one thing I also love about it is the strange homoeroticism that's implied throughout the entire movie. Like there's sure. the part where Malcolm McDowell, um, he's hating on two women who are sucking dicks made of, le- sorry, lollipops that look like dicks. And yes. he just like leans over and starts licking one of them. It's a very strange aspect. I kind of loved it. But at the same time, it speaks to that puerile nature you were talking about. Um, I mean, I can't believe we got this far without talking about the uh, the Wendy Carlos score. Which God, is, it's so good. It's it's still it's still totemic. Like all these years on, it's still like number one in its weight class. Because there's so many ways to do that electronic, menacing but grandiose score, but it's really difficult to do it in a way that is genuinely kind of alien, genuinely a little bit off putting, while still being familiar enough that it doesn't sound atonal. It's taking advantage of those like goofy early 70s synth patches, which gives it that kind of edge that you just spoke about. It's kind of like the you just you just twist her um, switched on Bach just enough to make it so it's kind of a farce. Yeah, exactly. Um, But we've talked we've already gotten almost halfway through this 20 minutes. This is a lot less time than I remembered it being. (laughs) <laughs> but that's good. It's keeping us honest. Um, and I think we should talk for a second about Cool Hand Luke, which is a movie that I've seen once before, and I watched it with my dad, which is kind of the best way to watch it. So if, if you got a dad, you should watch Cool Hand Luke with him. It's a, it's a good dad movie. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it is a good dad movie, and I feel like this this list is going to be rife with them. Yeah, and so for people who hadn't listened to the original, the episode zero of us, uh, we both made brackets for each other guessing what the other person would have chosen. And until I knew that Derek liked Clockwork Orange, I have, I currently have Cool Hand Luke as my pick for you for this because Mm. it's, I don't want, I don't mean this like as you have bad taste or you have boring taste, but you have dad taste sometimes in a good way. I mean, my favorite record from last year was the War on Drugs's uh, Deeper Understanding. So I can see how you could go there. But um, so Cool Hand Luke uh, 1967, directed by one Stuart Rosenberg, starring the immortal Paul Newman, uh, George Kennedy, in uh, what I think was an a- a Academy Award-winning performance. For George Kennedy? For George Kennedy. Hmm, interesting. I mean, he. I think him and Newman have great character together and like great chemistry together. And intellectually, I remembered that Paul Newman was an attractive man. But we watched yep. we watched this and uh, the other matchup for today. We're also going to talk about Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. He is, I am not attracted to many men, but Paul Newman is, it seems like impossible. It seems like he's not a real person. Like there's no way a human being is as attractive as Paul Newman is. Paul Newman is a very, very, very photogenic man. Um, And, and a very charismatic, uh, very charismatic actor. And this movie, so like it hinges upon him is like, he is the focal point of everything in this movie. This movie does not work as well. If someone other, so, someone less, some otherworldly is someone less otherworldly charismatic than Paul Newman's at the center. of. Yeah. Because we've, we talked about this before, but uh, this movie is a little blunt, let's say a little on the nose in a, a its, little, you say in its Jesus imagery. I mean, the thing I pointed out is there's a scene where Paul Newman, uh, or I should say Luke, bets offhandedly that he can eat 50 eggs. And at the end of him eating those 50 eggs, which he does, spoiler alert, he accomplishes the task, (laughs) is him laid on the table with his arms spread open in a crucifix pose. And that wasn't enough. They also had to cross his legs over, so it literally looks (laughs) like a crucifixion. It is the hokiest goddamn thing, and I totally fell for it. 
There's only one other instance in a movie where I thought of... There's only one instance where I saw something in a movie, like a more obvious kind of, this man is representative of Christ. And that was the movie Jesus of Montreal. (laughs) So I thought you were going to say The Green Mile, which we will get to at some point. But that is a movie that likes its Jesus allegory. Have you seen Jesus of Montreal? I have not. It's okay, but let me spoil this part for you. Okay. So, spoiler alert, Jesus dies, or the Jesus figure dies. And so they have him laid out in a hospital, in, a, in, a, in like a hospital bed with his arms out as they're performing surgery on him uh, to like uh, remove the organs to donate to other people. Oh, okay. So he's like laid out, so he's laid out like in the Jesus pose. Yeah, yeah. As he's about to give life to other people, like his eyes and his liver and other shit. And it's like, you want oh, Jesus God. allegory? I highly recommend Jesus of Montreal. <laughs> Well, apparently I've at least opened this Wikipedia page before because it is uh, purple on my Google search. So there you at, go. at some point in history, I wanted to watch Jesus of Montreal. Maybe I'll get to it at some point. That's all right. Okay. It's all right. That's it's okay. It's, it's you know, but um, I think this, like the other thing that like basically makes this movie is Conrad Hall's cinematography. Yes. Like, it, it does it a lot of mad work. sweaty. It does a lot of work that the directing and editing don't really do. Like, the directing is not great. Besides the, I think, I don't want to say that the actor editing is bad, but at the same time, it's also Paul Newman, and it's also uh, George Kennedy, so, like, these great actors who kind of already know how to do it. There's also, um, what's his name, is also in it. Oh, my God. Just died recently. Oh, uh, Harry Dean Stanton. Yes, Harry Dean Stanton has a small role in it as well. Yeah, he gets to sing. He does get to sing. It's, I, I like that part. I mean, I liked all the singing. There's a part where um, Paul Newman's character sings uh, Plastic Jesus after his uh-huh. mother dies. That's um, good scene. It's a very good scene. And that's also another one of those scenes that I think would feel very hokey if you just took Paul Newman out of it or just took a little bit of his charisma away. He really needs all of that to sell that. And I think it works. But it's it's so on the edge the entire time. It's almost on parody. Uh one thing I do want to bring up that's kind of a focal point in the movie, and I don't think this movie is going to move forward. I'm going to be totally blunt, so I want to talk about it now, is there's the one scene with Joy Harmon that's kind of the most famous scene in the movie. Do you want to describe what happens with the girl who washes the car? Oh, my God. Um, Paul Newman, George Kennedy and company are working on a chain gang cleaning ditches out. And over yonder beyond the ditch is, uh, is a voluptuous lady uh, washing her car. And there's like, basically, the movie stops dead for five minutes so we can just ogle at her tits. Yes, completely. Like, there's no, (laughs) this never comes up again. There's no point to it. Although, I mean, there's a thematic point. I think there's a reason it's there. But at the same time, it is ridiculous. And I kind of, I kind of like the audacity of the movie just because the reason that it makes sense in context, I will, I'll give the movie its credit and not just say it just wanted to be a movie about tits for five minutes, um, is that it's about these men's, like, uh, frustration and sexual frustration and being all cooped up and also a lot of um, homoeroticism in this movie, I should say. Uh, and it ogles her like we're assuming the men would ogle her. At the same time, it's a very strange scene and comes out of nowhere and leads nowhere as well that I'm not sure if it's necessary, but I'm kind of happy it's in the movie. Yeah, I mean, it, it makes this point, but I'm not going to sit here and say that I didn't feel kind of gross at the end of it. <laughs> Yeah, especially, like, there's one point where, at the start, she's just washing a car, and then by the end of it, she's literally, like, 
a squeegeeing out the soap onto her boobs, and then, like, her yeah. boobs are pressed against the window as she, like, moves them in circles. And it's like, no one washes a fucking car like this. It's like Porky's, basically, for five it's minutes. It's basically like Porky. It's, yeah, this, this movie starts to become, like, this sun-baked, sweaty Jesus allegory to become a fucking, uh, like, a boner comedy for five minutes. <laughs> um, so, we, oh, have, man. we have five minutes to make this choice. So, what do you think? Is it going to be... I already said I think it's going to be um, A Clockwork Orange, but what do you think, Derek, and do you think you could justify going the other way? I mean, I was going to go Clockwork Orange. I do think it's a better film. Um, and a lot, I think it comes down to... It's a movie... I, I think it just comes down to personality. Like, this movie... A Clockwork Orange has a lot more of, like, an identity and a craft to it, like, vision. I mean, I think Cool Hand looks a very solid movie, but it so nakedly hinges upon two performances, and it's color palette. Whereas color, uh, Clockwork Orange is like the total package. Yeah, I would agree. I think Clockwork Orange is an entire movie and there's nothing I would take out of there. Whereas Cool Hand Luke has some bum moments, some moments that don't quite work or that are a little awkward or the directing is a little too flat to really get across what it's going for. Mm-hmm. I think that there's some moments in it that reach the heights of Clockwork Orange, but it doesn't, con- sure. it doesn't sustain them. And no. Clockwork Orange the entire time is at that height, so which is an impressive yes. feat. So congratulations, I suppose, to Clockwork Orange. Is that an upset? Let's see what the seeds were. No, Clockwork Orange was a higher seed, 86 versus 171. So, so far, we have no surprises. Uh, yeah, well, you know, we'll, we'll get there. Okay. Uh, maybe this will be a surprise. Who knows? Matchup number two. Uh, we have uh, Back to the Future, directed by Robert Zemeckis, released in 1985. And Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Released in 1969, directed by George Roy Hill. So, I didn't grow up watching a lot of movies. And I definitely didn't see much of the, can- like, many of, like, the canon sort of childhood movies. I came to those really late, and Back to the Future is no exception. So you didn't watch Back to the Future when you were, like, a teen or a kid? I definitely didn't watch it when I was, like, I think the first time I saw Back to the Future, I was maybe 13. See, I have... I have the VHS tape that I first watched it on still. I've so, seen the movie yeah. quite a few times. And actually, full full disclosure, both of us, uh, for these first two episodes, missed watching rewatching a film. I mm-hmm. missed rewatching Back to the Future due to some poor time management. We won't do it in the future, but or maybe we will. Who knows? Maybe. Uh, no promises. This is a lot of fucking movies to get through. But mm. I did not rewatch Back to the Future, so I'm going off of my memory of it. But I've seen it a lot of times. Like I could probably repeat the plot more or less point for point. I will get to the one that I didn't watch in this first batch when we get there. Yes. So you have a history with this movie. I mean, history is a little bit of a strange term because it's a movie I always liked and never turned off, but I would never reach for. It's a kind of, like, I see people, especially people from the 80s, I'm not from the 80s, I was born in 1990, but I see people of uh, slightly older than me who have a love of this movie. Kind of similar to they have a love of Ghostbusters. And I feel a similar way to both of those. And then I watched them quite a few times when I was a kid. And I like them. And I still like them. I think that they're both still very good movies. But the mo- that movie for me is Jurassic Park. Jurassic Park sure. is that movie for me. And for someone else, that's Back to the Future. I just don't quite see what's going on in there. But I think there's a lot of really interesting stuff. There's a couple weird things with like the attempted rape. And then how mm-hmm. um, Michael J. Fox kind of ontologically steals rock and roll from black people. That's kind of <laughs> weird. Um, but I think overall, it's consistently just really fun. Oh, it's 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 fun as hell. It's, it's I think the word I used when I talked 
uh, when I when I talked with uh, with my girlfriend about it later was cute. So, and I don't mean that in a bad way. It's a very cute film. It's very it's it's it's. I mean, there's a reason this fucking movie made like six hundred million dollars at the box office. It's like it's 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 like pretty pretty good popcorn film. Yeah, and it's it's got the combination of both the broader ideas, like the oh, going back in time to make sure your parents get back together. That's a fun idea, and then you yeah. also have the littler things, like the dialogue or like the fact that his name comes from his underwear because underwear says Calvin <laughs> Klein, right? Sure. It's 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 it's. I used to think because I went like long stretches without having having actually watched this movie, and I used to have the notion that it was like this, um, this, this, uh, this a great example of narrative concision, which it's not. No, I, I forgot this movie is almost two fucking hours long. I didn't rewatch it. Does it feel that length? It doesn't feel that length. It doesn't feel two hours. But I will say that it is kind of this. Uh, it's this perfect movie about setup and payoff. In terms of structure, I think it's a very good example of like setting stuff up, paying it off, and having a three act structure in a film. I we can't have to think hold of... on for just a second because um, someone had some fun on the letterboxed um, page, or it must have been the movie database page, because um, when you hover over, if people haven't been on Letterboxd, when you hover over a per- an actor's name, it shows who they played. So Michael J. Fox played Marty McFly. How would you spell that? McFly? Uh, both, both names, Marty and McFly. Okay. Uh, M A R T Y M C F L Y. So you wouldn't spell it M A R T I M A K F L A? No, I wouldn't do it because about, that would be wrong. Would you spell George J O R J? Because someone decided to, and I'm just I'm tickled pink <laughs> that someone on the the movie database decided to have their shits and giggles right now on the names, the spellings of George and Marty McFly. All the others are the <laughs> same. Biff Tannen is the same. Loran Baines is the same. Uh, Doc Brown's the same. Just for some reason. Oh my god! <laughs> oh, you got you got to get your happiness any way you can in this world. Um, but sorry, back to Back to the Future. Is there? <laughs> what were you talking about about it? I was I was just saying that I, yeah I thought it was this model of narrative concision. What it actually is is this uh, great lesson in setup and payoff and like narrative structure. That's very fair. There's almost nothing in the movie that isn't eventually paid off somewhere else or set up really well early on very nothing comes out of nowhere yeah it's it's uh, i used to think it was a tight screenplay in terms of pace it's not it's a time it's a tight screenplay in terms of structure definitely even like the smaller things although one of the smaller things also does come to the weird like kind of almost racist part of it where marty just says to um the the what is the diner worker um, to, yeah. who, is, who is black? Hey, you you could be the mayor someday or something like that. And then we find out in the future he's the mayor. And yeah, he like, incepts the idea of uh, <laughs> of running for office. It's it's such a strange choice. I don't know whether I don't. It's not the worst thing in the world. I think this movie isn't actively like mean in almost. Hey, Michelle, yes. Would you call Back to the Future a racist film? Uh, yeah. I'd say it's like. <laughs> It's like your grandmother's racism. It's like, oh, oh man. what are you going to do? It's back to the future. Oh, man. <laughs> I don't want to put you on the spot either. Um, would you, like, genuine, genuine question. You don't have to say yes. Would you consider back to the future at least kind of racist? I would, I would I, like, I would consider that it has some, like, questionable racial shit. I don't know if I would go so far as to call it just, like, straight up racist. Yeah, I guess that depends on your exact de- definition of that term. But either way. Back to the Future is a fun um, film that has a couple things that are kind of fucking weird when you look back on it. I want, do want to say that a lot of the performances are very, very, very good mm-hmm, in this definitely. film. 
This Leia is, Thompson's excellent. This is Christmas the reason Glover's I excellent. have a crush on Leia Thompson. Leia Thompson was... You know what my Leia Thompson movie was when I was growing up? Because Howard the Duck. The it was Howard the Duck. It was Howard the Duck. God damn it. That's terrifying. I, I, I saw that movie like 50 fucking times. <laughs> That movie a lot. So you didn't watch Back to the Future when you were a child, but you did watch Howard the Duck. Here's the thing. My, uh, I come, uh, I didn't have, like, my mother bought us, like, me and my sister, we, she, like, went through, like, the whole Disney catalog. She bought the clamshells as they came out. So that was mostly what I was watching up until I was quite, I mean, up until I was, like, in my, in my teens. And, uh, and the, uh, some of the other VHSs we had were leftovers from my uncle's uh vhs collection my uncle was not exactly the most discerning cinephile so you bet your ass that i watched at least 30 times each howard the duck uh mannequin grease 2 um not even grease grease 2 um well those are the three big ones <laughs> I, I will say you could do a lot worse than mannequin mannequin uh, is a I, fine film although i haven't watched it since i was like 12 so that's totally probably wrong but still I, in my memory kim cattrall is very attractive i mean sure well, that's all I remember about that, about that fucking movie. So, like, that is how it drilled into my mind, apparently. And the fact that because I um, listen to the McElroy Brothers, as apparently everyone else on Earth does, since they talk mm-hmm. about today's special so much, in my head I've combined their descriptions of the TV series Today's Special with the plot of the movie Mannequin, so I have no idea what actually happens in that movie anymore. Uh, oh, yeah, I used to watch that shit as a kid, too. I mean, but uh, Mannequin don't have Muppets in it, though. <laughs> does yesterday does Today's Special? I've never seen it. Yeah, it's got like, yeah, it's got like puppets and shit. It's got human characters and it's got like you know knockoff Muppets. Okay, I believe you. But <laughs> oh man, uh, is there anything else you want to say? We have a minute and twenty one seconds left to talk about Back to the Future. I forgot how fucking horny this movie was. Oh yeah, yes. I think like a lot <laughs> oh, of movies man. in the eighties are uh, for like kids. Movies in the eighties are way hornier than you remember them being. And um, I I. And, you know, for all, like, this movie's been quoted to death, but I still really like uh, Christopher Lloyd's read of, uh, you're going to see some serious shit. Yeah, it's great. Also, uh, but, yeah, I mean, this- what a weird setup to, like, the fact that he stole uranium from, what was it? Like Libyan terrorists. Yeah, like, it's, there's the so 80s, many, man. so many parts of this movie have been normalized in my brain that only when I abstract them that they seem as weird as they actually are. No, and let, let, I mean, this is, after all, a movie about time travel using- a car with an aluminum chassis featuring uh, a not insignificant amount of uh, of assault and uh, allusions to terrorism. <laughs> Fun for the whole family. Fun for the whole family. Just like everyone's favorite Western <laughs> film, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, directed by George Roy Hill, starring the great Paul Newman, we've already discussed, and uh, the also great Robert Redford, um, Catherine Ross, Henry Jones, you know, the whole gang is there. Cloris Leachman's there for a little bit. I've never seen this movie before. Had you, Ross? Not, not Ross. Oh, not fuck. Ross. <laughs> God damn it. I made... I've been out of the I, podcasting I wrote, game for too long. I wrote a little note to myself in my head. It's like, how long is it going to be until she mistakes me for Ross? To be it fair... It turns out one episode. You have... It's two episodes. It's, well, I guess episode one. is episode zero. I didn't tell yeah. you, Ross. But Derek... Derek... Yes. Godin, yes. Can you tell me what your life experiences are with Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid? I hadn't seen it before. This is the first time that I saw it. I was very ill-versed in the works of Paul Newman that aren't like Slapshot. I've never seen Slapshot, but I've never seen this movie either. I think the only Paul Newman movie I'd seen before was probably Cool Hand Luke, honestly. Hudsucker Proxy? Oh yeah, I guess I saw I always forget he's kind of in that. I kind of forget that movie exists, to be entirely honest. 
movie's it's okay. A, it's not a bad movie, it's, but fun. it's it's not a Cohen classic. Yeah, it's uh, it's got its defenders, but yeah, I would consider it to be like sort of like lower mid tier. And I guess I've seen Cars. That makes me sad. That I've, like the other Paul Newman movie I've seen is Cars. Oh yeah, he was in Cars, wasn't he? Oh yeah, Ross actually made a joke about that in the chat. <laughs> he did. Um, he was at his hottest in Cars. That's true. So Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. What's this fucking movie about? This fucking movie's about Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid robbing trains and going on the lamb. It's kind of a kind of like a weird kind of hangout movie in a way. Yeah, there's not like really a through line to it. There's a, like a bunch of incidents happen and then the movie ends. Yeah, it's um so it's Robert it's here's here's why this movie. Let's get two of the biggest most charismatic uh bankable movie stars currently active and just Put them in a movie where they riff off of each other and just shenanigans happen. Because this is like a shenanigans movie. They rob a train. Yes. They rob another train. They get drunk. They go to uh, they go to South America. They learn Spanish, uh, kind of. They learn kind of. They 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 learn the bare minimum of Spanish. They rob some banks. They get arrested. Robert Redford can't swim. It's a very lackadaisical film. It's very it's it's kind of a hangout movie. And there's a lot of parallels, at least in terms of like tone and style, with Cool Hand Luke. Which uh, came out just uh, which came out just a couple of years before this, and I think this is like the the better version of that movie. Actually, that's one thing I wanted to bring up that I don't entirely love about it is that the tone switches between two different modes. One is almost serious, like uh, alternative western about like the sadness of like the lost frontier and all those kinds of things, and then it switches to like goofy buddy comedy movie, which yeah. it sometimes it works, sometimes it really doesn't. Like I. I don't, I'll be honest, I don't like the middle part of this movie. I think the beginning is incredibly strong. I think once they get to Bolivia, the movie comes back to being strong. But the middle part mm-hmm. where they're just being chased for a long ass time, I sure. drifted in and out of that. It wasn't entirely paying attention, to be honest. Yeah, um, yeah, I would tend to agree that this movie kind of sags in the middle. And that's not for like lack of trying, because I could see George Roy Hill working in the background. If I could talk just two seconds about George Roy Hill, who's like one of those unsung, not necessarily unsung because the man won, a, won an Oscar, but like, kind of just like uh, an unassuming, not the most uh, stylistic or inventive director, but someone who like always consistently put out like interesting looking films. Yeah, I I didn't realize he was the same guy who did Slaughterhouse-Five or The World According to Garp, or I haven't seen Slapshot, but I'm very aware of it. I had no idea he also did The Sting, also featuring yep. Robert Redford and Paul Newman. Yeah. And one thing I do want to say about that pairing, the reason I love it so much, um, first of all, they're both great actors. They're both incredibly mm-hmm. charismatic. Uh, they both do their shtick really well. And not to talk about how hot Paul Newman is again, but sure. it has to be said <laughs> that... Somehow, Paul Newman makes Robert Redford look like a bad choice. <laughs> like, in any other context, put Robert Redford in the room of almost anybody else on the planet, you'd be like, I want to fuck Robert Redford, obviously. But for some reason, when Paul Newman gets in there, he is so incredibly charismatic, so incredibly attractive, that he becomes the guy you want to be with. I think I think it's because Robert Redford's busy acting in this movie, and Paul Newman's is busy being Paul fun. Newman. <laughs> yeah, he's like not even doing, a, he's not doing anything besides just doing whatever he wants it seems like uh just the, just the uh, just the, the beginning of the film when he catches back up with the gang and challenges the dude to a knife fight <laughs> yes. that's just that's just if that if that movie was like all that this or would be the, like five-star masterpiece the fact that this movie stops to like have an extended bicycling scene which also ends in a bull chase 
set to uh, Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head. Yes. It's weird <laughs> choices. I like a lot of them. I like a lot of those choices. Um, but An extended montage of photographs to get them to South America. Oh, yeah. And a then, long montage. Um, so it's a shaggy film. There's a lot of... There's a lot of chaff, but the chaff is also kind of the good part. So I don't even know where I want to like start cutting off that chaff. Yeah, this is and this is a shorter movie than 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 Back to the Future. It is. It it didn't feel that just way barely, but it is. Yeah, it felt the other way around. Yeah, I think this is actually a spoiler alert for future podcasts. But of the first eight movies we did, I think this is the hardest matchup for me personally because uh, both these movies I like them. But I don't love them. They're both four-star movies to me. Now, they're not five-star movies. I think that they're better than most other movies. But at the same time, I wouldn't die for either of these movies. If you asked me, do I want to rewatch Butch Cassidy? I'd be like, yeah, that's fine. If you asked me if I wanted to like sit down and actually watch it again, probably not. I'm going to put it in the background and just like laugh at the bits I already like. I think my choice is just a tiny bit clearer because I prefer Back to the Future just a tiny bit because I there's a lot – I don't think – I don't think Americans got shagginess right until the mid seventies. Okay, okay. As like this is like an early go at it, but like like some because it reminded me of like you ever see the movie uh, uh, the Thunderbolt and Lightfoot with uh, Jeff Bridges? No, I've heard of I've heard tale of it multiple times, but I've that's never a, actually watched it. That's a shaggy ass movie, and it's like you know it's like dudes on the run and same color palette, and it's I mean. I think that I, I don't. I think the seventies is like the 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 great shaggy decade, more ways than one. And I think this is like an an an, an admirable first go. But I'm going to have to put my chips down on Back to the Future because it's 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 like a cool watch almost a a, sli- a slightly racist, really <laughs> cool watch. Um. So one thing I want to say before I say who I'm what I'm going to choose. For some reason, I've always confused what is it, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, correct? Yes. I've always confused that with the movie where Clint Eastwood has an orangutan. What is that movie called? Any Which Way But Loose? Any Which Way But Loose. I don't know why, but in my head, that's the same movie. <laughs> there's no there's no monkey in I've never uh, seen in either of them. I have no fucking clue what they're about. <laughs> but in my head, that's the same movie. But regardless, uh, I think if I had to choose between the two, like, absolutely, like, choose, I would probably go Butch Cassidy, but I see your point for Back to the Future, and I'm fine with that moving forward. Like I said, this is one of those, you can flip a coin, and I'm good either way. Sure. I mean, I mean, the, the, the there wasn't really much of a gulf between the two, but I do, like, prefer Back to the Future and its moving parts just a little bit more. Okay, fair enough. Um, so, that's our first episode, isn't it? Hey, yep, that's it. And we, How are we doing for time? We're great. We're like 40 minutes in. We did um, slightly under 20 minutes for both of those summaries. And we have time to finish up the whole thing, to say bye Excellent. and give plugs and all that crap. All right. So uh, if you want to yell at us because we picked uh, a movie you didn't like over a movie that you did like, uh, you can reach us on Twitter. I'd also say hold off for a second because it's probably going to – we're going to have a lot more movies that you don't like that move ahead. So Oh, yeah. Wait until you get, like, ten built up, then we'll move forward from there. Well, in any case, you can contact us on Twitter at, uh, fuck, what is it again? Something Middlebrow Middlebrowpod. Yes. You can reach us at twitter.com slash middlebrowpod. Uh, we are also on Twitter individually. I am there at Derek underscore G. I am there as at Space Jam Fan. And, uh, if you want to drop us a line, because you don't do Twitter or whatever, you can always do so... By emailing us at 
I'm really tired, Michelle. I had a long day. Middlebrowmadness <laughs> at gmail.com. Middlebrowmadness at gmail.com. So that's it for our first episode. And we hope that you will tune in for the next step in this long, long, long journey we've signed up for. So Which, I've been Derek Goddard. Hold on. Oh, shit. Go ahead. What are the movies that we're going to be discussing next week, Derek? That's or a good I should idea. say in two weeks. We're doing this every other week. Yes. So the matchups for next week. Uh, LA Confidential versus The Wolf of Wall Street and Seven versus Paper Moon. So so fire up the DVD player, y'all. That's your homework if you want to keep up. I don't see why you would, but you can if you want to. People like watching movies, I hear. People are into that these days. Yeah, 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 yeah. I hear they make money. Unless you're movie pass. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, did they the pod, Michelle? What? Oh, God, fuck yeah. So, so <laughs> when you're listening to this and there's... It's four years later, and you decided, finally, they finished the first, like, bracket. I can finally watch, listen to all the episodes. You'll be listening to this going, oh, I know when this happened. Movie Pass was 12 years ago. <laughs> um, oh, how, do we, how do we end this fucking thing? I'm sorry? How do we end this fucking thing? Oh, didn't man. You, you, had, you had, like, a catchphrase, didn't you? I like, definitely swore. You said, fucking movies, man, or something along those lines. Uh, keep watching movies, I'll fuck, something like that. That, we can't go this blue. We have to say nicer words than that. We can't get... Should we bleep out the swears so we don't have to be the explicit tag on iTunes, or is that just part of our life? I think that's just part of our life. Who doesn't okay. swear on a podcast? Um, oh, no, Ross and Carrie, they don't swear. Or no, I guess they scored like once or twice. Now we're promoting okay. other podcasts on our podcast. <laughs> we're going to end this before uh, we get any worse, because we have to record another fucking episode, too. So yes, I've uh, been Michelle Arf. I've been Derek Gaudet. Those are fucking sweet. <laughs> have movies be jolly the end have movies be jolly <laughs> <laughs>